Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has in their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Esselt Jones is a history professor at the University of Manitoba and is the award-winning author of Influenza 1918, Death, Disease, and Struggle in Winnipeg. So who better to talk about the current pandemic, uh, about the parallels to the past, and the historical context of what we're all collectively going through? When you have a pandemic, which is by definition something that affects more than one country, you see that interconnectedness. And, you know, most of us are in one way or another self-interested. So sometimes we need to shine a light on that, right? And say, you know, look, you know, you can ignore these inequities. But what is the impact going to be on on the world as a whole? And so we need both a sense of moral justice, um, but we also need a little bit of common sense, you know. I sat down with Professor Jones to talk about the flu pandemic of 1918, COVID-19 when viewed through a historical lens, and what we can learn from the past to avoid making the same mistakes from over a century ago. I'm now joined via Zoom by Essel Jones. She's the Dean of Studies at St. John's College in Winnipeg and, the professor, and a professor at the University of Manitoba uh, with, a fis- with a focus on the history of health and disease in Canada and the modern world and so much more. But Essel, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we kind of touched on it before we started recording, but teaching in COVID-19 has has obviously been a change for for everyone here uh, in the world, probably. What has it been like for you teaching over Zoom and over different technologies? And and what has this change been like over the last uh, year and a bit? Well, I've just gone back. I was on research leave and I was just gone back in January to teaching. So I still feel that it's fairly fresh for me. Um, There are good things and bad things about it. Uh, You know, there's it kind of pushes you to go and diversify your course a little bit. And because we're all, we all talk about Zoom fatigue and how, and these students are, you know, my Zoom fatigue doesn't even come close to what some of them are experiencing. So I try to mix it up a little bit, um, you know, have, and you, you have more options, say, for example, for guest speakers to your class, because they don't need to be physically located where you are. Um, so trying to take advantage of that and, because I'm teaching um, disease in the modern world, I'm able to take advantage of all the amazing stuff that's been going on online around COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the positive side. The negative side is not, I don't really feel like I know who they are mm-hmm. <laughs> unless they were my students in another class and their names and faces are familiar. It's really hard to get a handle on that um, when you're teaching online. Yeah, those personal touches for sure. So you mentioned the class is called Disease and Society in the Modern World that you're teaching right now. That How could that be? I mean, that has to be so relevant. And everyone who's taking that class is probably, you know, what are the conversations like that in your classes on a day-to-day basis when it comes to something that's so prevalent in our lives, you know, in, in 2021? Well, it's... It's really interesting for me because I'm a social historian. So my main goal in teaching that kind of class has been to illustrate the relationship between the social and cultural context and the disease outbreak. Um, And in the past, I used to, you know, there's a theoretical way of approaching that. You try to give examples um, that might resonate with students. Well, now, you know, 
they're living it. You don't have to work to establish that relationship. They're very aware of it, either for personal reasons or because of everything that's happened in the world since COVID started. And that's a real gift for teaching because you're starting from a different place, I find. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, it, it's almost e- easier to relate something that someone's obviously lived through than, you know, talking about the influenza pandemic of the early 1900s or whatever. Uh, that being said, is there any parallels that of what you've written about in the past that you see happening now that you are either alarmed about or, you know, you kind of see happening and, and seeing, oh, this happened before and we're kind of making the same mistakes as the past? Um. I guess yes and no. I mean, there's there there are big questions around investment and and particularly investment in public health and healthcare. But there are also those challenges that are always uh, there with the history of infectious disease around class, race, um, social inequality, which are you know sort of major themes in how I think of diseases in the past. And sometimes those inequities play. A very visible role, um, and sometimes they you need to probe them a little bit more. But certainly, everybody experiences uh, epidemic disease outbreaks in a way that is very shaped by the, what their lives were and are, um, and that's obvious to us now too, right? I mean, we see that every day. Um, you and I were talking before we started about how. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a professional, a salaried professional. Um, I haven't lost income. Uh, I don't have to go into work sick. Uh, all of those kinds of questions. And those are true in the past too. And influenza was a bit different, different. I think we feel it now more than ever in the sense that there wasn't major lockdowns during the flu. There were some short-term lockdowns. Um, but the disease sort of burned its way through the city, right? Mm. Uh, you know, with hundreds, hundreds of cases a day and killing about 1200 people in, in the city of Winnipeg, which was, you know, basically inner city Winnipeg in, you know, three months or so. So, and then it it kind of, it returned a little bit in the spring of 1919. Um, But the, the living with long-term lockdowns, uh, and the, you know, the now, you know, threat of a third wave, I think is, is unique, um, certainly in the history of the modern world's in, uh, relationship with infectious disease. So the lockdown itself is a puzzle that needs to be solved. Um, and it is so, it lingers now. So later mm-hmm. today, I'm talking with someone about mental health and infectious disease. And I think that's, you know, something that we really keep in mind now in a way that's we're very conscious of that in a way that people weren't exactly early in the 20th century. Right. Yeah. There's so many different aspects and sort of elements of what's going on. Let's, can we talk a little bit about the social, you, you mentioned a little bit about the social implications and how obviously this um, pandemic is hitting different socioeconomic statuses much differently. As you said, like I'm, you know, still working from home and, and, and we're very privileged in that sense, but how do you think, society is going to alter our um, view of how we're structured societally. Do you, do you believe this? Pa- I'm hoping and praying and, you know, crossing my fingers that afterwards we're going to have a little bit more equitable society because we're realizing 
what level that we're all at after this. Do you think that that's happening? Do you think we're in the motions of getting there? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I hope so too. And I, you know, I've been working with a bunch of, uh, with a bunch of scholars from across Canada on, on making policy proposals for things that we need to do differently going forward in, in everything from long-term care and mental health to public health policy. Um, I think to some extent that depends on our choices as a community, right? Our, are we really, really willing to get behind that and drive it forward? Because certainly after the flu pandemic, the the big because of the the flu pandemic and the first world war sort of go together, right? And there was such a push to return to normal life afterwards. Mm -hmm. And not really any significant investment in greater social equality. And sometimes quite the opposite, right? I mean, if we think about the police response to the general strike in Winnipeg. We still really thought that it was a good idea to repress people's labor rights, even after the pandemic. So I certainly hope that's not what we're going to see going forward in Canada. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's frustrating to me when not six months ago, there's there's a celebration of the essential workers and there's a all these conversations about how important that, you know, the these people are to our society. And then when we're discussing, you know, raising minimum wage and things like that. On the other hand, people just say like, ah, they don't deserve, you know, so it, in one ear and out the other, it's kind of people are talking about how essential people are, but then not willing to pay them a living wage when they're literally keeping society afloat. Like do you, when you see sort of the the parallels of, of the 1919 labor movement and how we're kind of how the economy is a little bit stagnated for for. I can speak for my generation and how it's very difficult to, you know, buy a house on a all the all the issues aside like when you see the same issues a hundred years apart as a historian does that frustrate you do you think that we can still like move the needle on on some of these issues Where, what are your thoughts well I guess I, I'm mindful of it and and there are some big differences for us socially in terms of you know equity issues where the labor movement in the early 20th century was a very white movement and you know now the the relationship between Black Lives Matter and COVID is very clear, and you know the relationship between racial inequality and long term care is very clear. And you're right, we totally need to step up um, and uh, not just talk about or recognize those things, but then make the next step. Um, and sick pay for workers is something that I've you know been been passionate about since COVID started both because it makes sense and also because of the enormous pressure that people are under who have no paid sick leave from work mm -hmm. and the, the horrible choices that they have to make. And that really does remind me of 1918 because you know people had no, uh, no coverage of that kind. Um, they didn't have Medicare either. So you know those are, those are things we can address uh, and you're right, minimum wage is another. It was very disappointing to see Biden's stimulus package go through, but not the minimum wage piece, because mm -hmm. that's something that will stay and have a long-term positive impact on people's lives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking back, I was a you know server bartender for over a decade, and the the it seems insane to to think about it now, but what we used to ha put our serve like 
it didn't matter if you're sneezing, coughing, like leaking out of your face. You're still coming to work and, and handing people their food. And nowadays it's like, oh, my God, I can't even fathom why that would be allowed. You know, it's just but but it's it's people don't have a choice. And I think that's a that's something that a lot of um, a, a lot of privileged folks don't really understand is that you can take a sick day. You know, you have your vacation days to use. You can take them. We have a wonderful mental health program. You can take a mental health day. There is mm-hmm. an entire a group of people that don't have this option have to go to work, have to go sick. And, and it's, mm-hmm. I think I'm glad that we're shining a light on a lot of these things, but I'm hoping that it, the wave of, of support for these people can continue even post COVID. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Are you optimistic when it comes to policy changes and things like that, when you're working with your colleagues across, across the country? Um, well, I'm always optimistic, right? I mean, that's just, you know, uh, and people do have an enormous capacity to resist and to struggle for things that are more just. Um, I think there's a lot of misapprehensions around sick leave policy in the private mm. sector and the public sector, although the public sector, people are much more likely to have sick leave coverage because they're, they're more likely to be unionized. Um, but it's the majority of Canadians don't have any sick leave coverage. So, uh, you know, the, there are stereotypes around that. Like, oh, if you, if you give an average working person um, paid sick leave, they're gonna abuse it, you know? They're just gonna not feel like getting up one morning and not show up to work. And, um, you know, my health economist colleagues tell me there's very little evidence that that's actually how it works. And, you know, people go to work every day for a lot of reasons, and the paycheck is one of them, but you can't have it be grossly unfair. Um, and and you, you just need to continue to push for that. And I think that's, um, you know, the labor movement and, you know, to some extent, the NDP too, have sort of made that a focus for themselves right now. And I think it's probably important for uh, social movements to have specific goals that they want to really try to get at right now. Yeah. Uh, minimum wage housing is another. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you huge. know, things that we we can make measurable change on. Yeah. Well, when, yeah. when I think about housing, I think about all the spa- wasted space of, you know, there's so many offices closed down, down to, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's showing people that there is enough room, there is enough, there are enough resources for everyone. Like we need to, we need to restructure things so everyone has a sh- fair shot and has the same starting point at least. You know, so many of these conversations that I'm having with people are are just talking about we don't all start the race at the same spot. You know, and we need to find a way to make sure everyone has that same opportunity to start at the start. But I don't know. It's it's hard. It's hard to stay optimistic. How have you stayed optimistic over the years when when you are a buff, a history buff? So you see the patterns. But how, how are you staying uh, optimistic in, in those situations? Um, well, I think for like history for me is is also a very personal thing. And so it has a lot of meaning for me personally. So. Um, you know, I, I came from a Welsh background and my, my mother's side, particularly were working class people. Um, I was involved with the labor movement for about a decade when I was in my twenties and thirties. And, um, you know, I remember my mom telling me at that time that my grandfather was a treasurer of his, uh, union in the slate quarry where he worked until he became disabled fairly young. Um, mm. And there were a lot of things about, you know, growing up that I didn't really understand until I took a class in British, uh, British history. 
um, uh, you know, in which I, I started to understand to the health implications of the inequality that some of my ancestors grew up with. And it just helped, it helped me understand my mom a lot better um, and my dad too, but my father was a school teacher and, um, you know, had some recognition and, and uh, respect. Um, and I, I think life was very difficult for my mom's family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his, so history brings you something that, that, and somehow that understanding is really important. And, it, and I think a lot of people feel that way about history. Like it, it contributes a positive thing in the sense of how it helps you understand uh, where you come from. That sounds a little trite, but, you know, there's a, there's a level of, of understanding of, of your own life um, and the period of history that you're living through right. when you have that connection with the past. Yeah, well, it's just an, an additional context to help you kind of put two and two together or see like, oh, that's why, you know, my grandma was like that or, you know, whatever the, the case might be. Uh, but my struggle is seeing, you know, protesters 100 years ago fight for the same things that people are fighting for now. Mm. I try to be pos- pes- or optimistic, but it just seems like how, how are these problems still not solved? You know, like how, how are we still... Mm you know, clawing for these. Some of them are, right? Okay, yeah. You know, uh, yes, there's many, you know, (laughs) left unresolved, but uh, I also do the history of Medicare. And, Mm. you know, the period between World War I and World War II was hugely important for people's struggles for socialized healthcare. And, you know, ultimately, those are the reasons, all of that effort is the reason why we have Medicare in Canada. Uh, it's not just about who had the brightest idea, you know, or which uh, which leader um, decided they were going to do it or not. It's it's about decades, really, of struggles to, you know, create a more equitable health system. Mm-hmm. And certainly the health system, such as it was in the early 20th century, it was very charity based um, and people had very few rights so they fought for those rights. And mm-hmm. I, I see that Medicare is far from perfect. There are all kinds of ways in which it, it, has, it needs changing and improving, but it is an example. Um, and you know, trade union recognition rights are the same. You've got to be patient. Right, I think <laughs> maybe that's my issue. Story and you're always <laughs> taking the long view, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm I, I think pessimistic is the wrong word. It's I'm impatient. You know, I, I want these things to be solved now, but I understand, I guess there's there's layers and, 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 and uh, you know, yeah, no, that makes sense. Do you think that there's parallels between um, movements from 100 years ago, from even 20, 20, 30 years ago to now when it comes to people fighting for their rights? Do you, like, do you see technology helping that, hindering it? How do, you see, how do you see the protests of 2020 and 2021 and the Black Lives Matter and everything that we've been doing this year and last year compared to, to, to protests of the past? Mm-hmm. Well, Black Lives Matter is the, is the key example, isn't it, of how these kind of world events intersect um, and create something that isn't new, right? I mean, people have been struggling for racial justice for forever, um, but gives it a new urgency, uh, a new perspective, and so on. Um, and that, you know, that to me made perfect sense at the time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the relationship between the way, as epidemic historians say, 
you know, that sort of lays bare all of these inequities. And it's not as easy to hide from them. It also highlights the way in which communities are connected together, but also we're globally connected. So when you have a pandemic, which is by definition something that affects more than one country, you see that interconnectedness. And you know, most of us are in one way or another self-interested. So sometimes we need to shine a light on that, right? And say, you know, look, you know, you can ignore these inequities, but what is the impact going to be um, on, on the world as a whole? And so we need both a sense of moral justice, um, but we also need a little bit of common sense, you know, like uh, there's a, a lot of stuff that needs to be done in public health is not really pie in the sky stuff. It's very, it is very common sense. Mm-hmm. And on the ground level too, right? Yeah, absolutely. We, we touched on this a little bit, I think, before we maybe started recording, but you, I'm assuming that once this all starts, can you take me back to once the pandemic, like, I guess, 20, maybe December 2019, did your phone immediately just start ringing off the hook of people wanting your opinion and your thoughts on, you know, like the historical context of things? Can you take us back to the very beginning of, of COVID-19? Um, what did you see with your sort of expertise and your perspective and and how has that played out? Did it play out how you thought it would play out? Bring me back to the beginning and and how you thought this was all going to go down. Uh, Well, historians will always say, you know, no crystal, (laughs) no crystal balls. A historian doesn't make you, you know, a diviner of the future, but um, disease historians and scientists, of course, have been talking about the coming pandemic for a long time. And there had been sort of an escalation in, in the interest, of, interest in that history around the 100th anniversary of, uh, or centenary of influenza. Um, and no, I don't, it, it, I think it, when it really started to, you know, when things really started to gel in everyone's minds was early March when, you know, the lockdowns really started. Um, and it was, it was strange for everyone at that point. Um, and I think a lot of what you know I would say today is the same sort of perspective I had at the time, but then there are certain things that you just don't really fully appreciate, like the impact of extended lockdown, for instance. And being a historian doesn't really necessarily help you navigate that because it's, it's not something that states in the early 20th century really had the power or the ability to do. Um, and then, you know, the, the, and then there are other things like um, the emergence of the variants of COVID. And, you know, like I've been waiting for that one for a while mm. because of, it's, it's a virus. Viruses yeah. mutate. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the, you know, his, historians say that the virus, that virus mutated between spring of that year and the fall of 1918 into something much more deadly. So, you know, I feel the same fears as everyone else. And in the, in that case, your knowledge doesn't really help you right. and, and <laughs> navigate probably the hinders fear. you a bit more. Yeah. Cause you're like, yeah. Oh, you can kind of see some, some additional uh, hurdles coming before they even are on the public consciousness a little bit. Yes. And it, you know, at, at, at this moment when there's a lot of people expressing concerns about opening up, um, you know, I do have this uh, slight sort of feeling of dread in the back of my mind and I'm really, I hope I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, you know, there was that initial sort of first few weeks or months of, of conversation about 
the parallels between influenza and COVID, which I've always tried to, I, I don't think it's a cookie cutter thing at all. Mm. I mean, there were certain key differences with influenza, particularly the age demographic, the age mortality um, curve, what flu historians call the W curve of age um, mortality, because influenza, most of the people, the majority of people who it killed were between the age of 20 and 40. Oh. So very different from COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and with different long-term consequences on society as a result of that, particularly mm -hmm. on families, uh, young families. Right. So that's something that I've written about in my own work. And in our case, I think our, our really important issue that we probably go to first is how, how we address um, vulnerabilities, very, very skewed vulnerabilities um, based on racial difference and racial inequality, the situation of Indigenous people, which is quite alarming again at the moment, mm -hmm. um, but also how we treat our elders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we really need to solve that problem. Um, yeah. And there are a lot of very bright people who could tell you, you know, kind of what we need to do. Um, but again, we need to do it. So the, the social fallout is a bit different um, in terms of what's gonna happen to people's family lives, uh, what the stressors are, what the sources of stress are. Um, but, you know, there are always, they're always you know, similarities as well, but. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's one of the most interesting aspects of this whole thing is, is the, so I, I love how you put that. I've never heard it put that way, but the social fallout of what's gonna happen because we're seeing the inequities and you can't you can't sweep it under the rug anymore you know it, it, it's so in your face and like okay this is what's actually happening that it's it's uh, uh it has to be addressed at this point like i i think there we can't uh we can't keep going on the same trajectory that we were going and and realizing that the haves versus the have-nots is going to you know continue that widening that gap um what do you think the average person needs to do to kind of um, to close that gap? What, what would you say the average person could do to, to, to address some of these inequities uh, when it comes to, to just our general society? Well, I think that that sense of social solidarity is very important. So, I mean, the activism is very important, but so too is what the average person thinks mm -hmm. because elected leaders are motivated by you know, what the average person thinks in relation to public policy um, as much as they are by voices that are advocating for change. So um, it's what, what the ordinary person out there thinks and believes about COVID is very, very important. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've always tried in my own work to enhance people's sense of humanity around infectious disease, because of course there frequently is stigma. And there are two sides to, for, for instance, the awareness of um, what's going on in Indigenous communities or among urban Indigenous people or what's happening among Black Canadians. Um, because on the one hand, that's a very important issue to raise and to respond to. On the other hand, for people who are not Indigenous or not people of colour, it can uh, you know, if it isn't, um, it could be conceived of as a, as a reason for stigmatizing people. And that's historically, that is frequently what happens, that when a disease has been around for a little while and people are slightly more used to it and the social variants become very clear, 
then it becomes identified with a certain group of people mm -hmm. and therefore used to deepen stigma. Right. And that's something we really want to avoid. And I think that's something that's in a way on the average person. Mm -hmm. um, it, certainly it's on leaders to set, you know, to say, to not feed that, right? To not be, you know, talking about the Chinese, uh, right. you know, Chinese, Chinese flu disease and stuff, yeah. or whatever. Um, and it that's important, but so too is how we each think and talk about uh, those questions. Right. Mm -hmm. And that we not, you know, that we recognize that, you know, those those inequities are um, they're multiple. Right. And that people are not to blame for them either. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, you know, it's that's the tricky business. Right. Because it really does, at the end of the day, show what sort of society you're living in, how people right. end up responding to that. Yeah, 100%. Very well said, very well spoken, for sure. Um, thank you for doing this podcast. I really appreciate your time and your perspective. Uh, at the end of our time together, we do a little sub or a little segment called Just Because. It's the same seven questions I ask every single guest, just talking about the causes you care about. We, we might have touched on a couple of, but are you okay to go through those seven? Sure. I'll right. do my best. Okay. Question one is, what is the, it might be, we already might have touched on the, you know, the labor movement, but uh, what is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? Um, yeah, I thought, I thought a lot about that. You asked, asked, uh, asked me to think about that. And I, I think it was probably gender equality. Mm. Um, because when I, I, I graduated from high school in 1981. So yes, now you know how old I am. Um, and I went to university and I, my first four years of university, I had one woman professor. And for some reason, I became very aware of this at that moment in my life. Um, so, you know, I wasn't out there doing activism. Uh, I just wasn't at that place yet. Um, but I think that was the first, maybe the first moment when I really put, started putting the pieces together. Yeah, you're conscious of it for the first yeah, time. Consciousness, ever. That's yeah. A, yeah, that's a big word. Yeah, sure. important one. Uh, question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all for you and you can just snap your fingers and something would happen, what's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause? Uh, well, we've talked about paid sick leave, but I want to I want to mention another one because I've been working a lot with um, uh, some people who are experts in archival preservation mm -hmm. the last few months um, about the preservation of COVID-19 records and the importance of providing resources at the community level, particularly for racialized or marginalized groups um, in order to preserve their own stories, but just for all of us to have that opportunity so that historians and members of the public can go back uh, and it won't be, you know, forgotten, which, you know, the flu pandemic was referred to as the forgotten pandemic for decades. Mm. Um, and maybe you went to high school and didn't learn anything about it, which was, you know, common. So that keeping that, keeping the memory of COVID-19 um, accessible to people is really important to me. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's, you know, that's partly about resources and it's just partly about recognizing all the stuff that people are out there doing. Mm -hmm. Has technology really adjusted the way history is captured? Like, mm. since yeah, that's an interesting career? question. Yeah. Um, well, now, of course, there's a, a archivists need to be experts in digital in the digital record. Um, and there Canada hasn't done enough. Uh, either at any level, civic, provincial, or federally, to 
uh, allow us to get these kind of broad snapshots of what's going on digitally, even just on the internet, Mm -hmm. um, on the web. Sorry, on the web. (laughs) I'm not an expert, so my terminology gets wrong. That sounds right to me. So web archiving is a thing, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I've learned a little bit about it, um, that, you know, there are ways of tackling that, but they need to be supported. Um, And of course, social, maintaining the records of social media, um, those are are also super important. There are privacy concerns there and so on. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, digital media are the thing now that historians and archivists need to think about for the future. Yeah, there's so many like I don't there's so many things that people don't even understand what how much goes into the history of Canada and like maintaining a record of what the heck is going on. Right. Like an actual public record that's official. And yeah, it's it's you don't really think about those things, but they're so important. Yeah. And, it you know, historically, archives have been the records that do get preserved are the records of governments, ideally. I mean, sometimes those get lost, too, but mm-hmm. um but the you know the the experiences of the majority or the minority of, of ordinary people are are much harder to find, right. um, and that's been a big task for social history for decades is trying to write that history with very hodgepodge um, sources because no one considered those sources important, mm-hmm. um, and I I think that's you know that's still the case right that we need to be mindful of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Be, be mindful of the inherent bias of the who who's telling the history, like who who's writing the history books. I mean, it shows in in you mentioned our high school, not mentioning the influenza, but like when it comes to reconciliation and and, um, and the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, we, it was a embarrassing um <laughs> education for my high school, you know, like what we left out about about residential schools and and anyways we don't have time to get into that but you're you're very right that being conscious of who's writing the history is important to understand what's being left out yeah yeah uh question three what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about your your current cause um well we talked a little bit about the stigma around you know going to work and um you know, being entitled to not go to work when you're not feeling well. You mentioned that you have a, you can take a mental health day. I, you know, I think that's such a huge thing. Um, And when I used to, you know, work a different job, um, I would tell myself, you know, I'm entitled to these sick days. And so therefore, if I need a mental health day, I think I should take one. But all around me, people felt very uncomfortable with the idea that they could do that. And you really saw that, right? Where people really had to be kind of way at the edge um, before they would take time for themselves, even if they had paid sick leave. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's this, just this idea that, I think it's just basically a classist and sometimes overlayered with, you know, racist ideas that, you know, ordinary people are always looking for a way to avoid doing a hard day's work, (laughs) you know? which is when you say it out loud, of course, it's offensive and completely uh, unfair, particularly since it's often stated by people who have those sorts of benefits, right? Mm -hmm, Yeah. You know, if they're sick, they can stay home and they don't sacrifice, you know, a day or a week or 
two weeks. Like imagine now for a person being asked to quarantine without any income support mm -hmm. or even being asked to wait for a COVID test result. Mm -hmm. They may not even have COVID, but they have to stay home for, and then they're, they're not paid for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's incredibly tough. That's a big burden to ask people to carry. And it's a, it, it's a burden that should be shared. Right. But we have to overcome our idea that people are shirking. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it seems like that's that's the fundamental difference is some people think, um, you know, someone who, I don't know, it, it seems like there's just a fundamental belief in either you believe in humans that are inherently good or you believe humans are inherently like willing to to steal and, and, you know, like take advantage of things. And if you believe that people are inherently good, you're usually sort of on this side of the argument. But if you, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard well, for I've, me to... I've learned that teaching also. I, mm. I learned early on in teaching that you should never think you know what's going on with your student. And, you know, I don't think that students are required to tell me every detail of their personal life if they need to hand a paper in a little bit late. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, I trust them. And, you know, okay, so sometimes, you know, people push that. Well, what are the reasons for that even? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you can't, you should never assume that you understand at all what that person's situation is. Very, very important. I couldn't agree more. Uh, question four is, what is a time in your life where you had to pivot because a plan A wasn't working out, so you had to go to plan B? Mm. Well, I became a young adult in the in the 80s, which wasn't a great time economically either. And uh, going to grad school was a really big deal for me to get an MA. And, you know, I was the first person in my immediate family, apart from my father, to get a university degree. Um, and doing going to grad school was, you know, it would have never occurred to me if one of my professors hadn't suggested it. Mm -hmm. And then I, I went to do my MA. And then when I got out, I couldn't find a job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was a political studies degree uh, from a good university. Um, but I couldn't find work. And so I ended up, uh, I ended up at a job where I then tried to unionize it. Awesome. <laughs> And then that went bad. <laughs> the, way, the way small business organizing drives often do. And someone in the labor movement offered me a clerical job. And for for quite a number of years when I was in my in my twenties, I I did clerical work. Mm -hmm. And, but you know, they were unionized positions and I had some benefits and uh, I had some security. Eventually, um, I decided to go back and get my PhD. Um, so yeah, that was that was a big pivot. Sure. That, you know, when I was 21 or 23 or 24, that wasn't what I was thinking my life was going to be like. But mm -hmm. it, you know, it also just really shaped who I am. Yeah, for sure. So it was it was not necessarily a, a negative thing. Yeah, luckily most 20-year-old, 20 20-somethings 20 are okay with pivoting, you know, a different life every six months pretty much. So, yeah. <laughs> Question uh, five, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, well, I think the best advice I'd ever, I've ever been given um, was by my father, actually, mm. um, who is, who's been dead now for uh, 30 years. Um, when I was making that choice about what to do with my life after I graduated. Um, and he, he basically said to me, you know, like, 
do what you do what you really want to do and don't worry about your security mm. um like don't don't make the choice based on money uh go where you want to go and that was totally um it must have been well it wasn't easy of course <laughs> mm-hmm. uh you know living in poverty uh kind of you know wears you down after a while but but going to another city where I really, you know, had an amazing few years, I don't think I would have done it if he hadn't said that to me. Mm-hmm. And it's always been something that I think of, right? Whenever you feel like you're, t- you're taking too big a risk um, that, you know, even when you really, you only have yourself to rely on, um, you can still kind of try it, you know? What's the worst that can happen? Mm-hmm. You go back to plan A. Yeah, exactly. I love it. That's beautiful. Uh, question six, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could uh, go back and talk to her right now? Oh, wow. That's really getting to the heart of the matter personally. A little it? bit. A little <laughs> bit. Um, I grew up in rural communities in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And I think I would say to my 10-year-old self, um, you know, your friends are what's important but what other people think of you is not the Mm. thing that should drive your life. Cause uh, you know, I'm not dissing rural life, but um, conformity, the pressure to conform in small communities is quite powerful. Mm -hmm. And uh, if that conformity is difficult for you, your childhood, especially when you're around that age can become kind of hard. Um, and there were certain expectations that people had of, you know, young girls, um, Mm. in 1970s Saskatchewan. (laughs) And I would say to her, you know, just like, keep on going, you know, I'm from Russell, Manitoba. So I know the small town life. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, thank you so much for this podcast. You are amazing. Obviously a wealth of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, the last question, Esselt, is what do you want to be remembered for? Oh, I, I think I just, I love to write, right? Mm. And so I think I just want my books to be remembered <laughs> um, for kind of giving a more human side to history uh, that helps people sort of come to terms with their own life experience. Beautiful. Uh, what are you working on now? So what, what, what are you writing these days? I'm starting a new project on cool. the history of community health in Manitoba. So I'm hoping to do some new case studies on the origins of community health centers beginning in the 1970s, which were very closely tied to social movements, feminist movements, um, worker movements. And uh, I'm I'm just building the, the groundwork for that study right now. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Uh, Professor Essel Jones, Dean of Studies at St. John's College and Professor at the University of Manitoba. Thank you for your time today. Uh, Good luck with the upcoming semesters and and everything. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you again to uh, Professor Essel Jones for the wonderful conversation today. I honestly learned (laughs) so much probably more than I ever have through one of these podcasts. So thank you, Essel, for sharing uh, your wisdom and your perspective on things. Very illuminating words and lots to think about. And I'm, I really, yeah, I'm, I'm going to remain optimistic that when, when we get through this pandemic, uh, people are, are really going to have an improved situation uh, all around. Yeah, I think we're due. 
All music on the show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music at trentonburton.com. Because and Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. You can learn more about the Foundation's wonderful work at wpgfdn.org or by going on social media and following at wpgfdn. I'm at Nolan Bicknell on all the socials. Thank you again for listening to the show today. Uh, We'll see you same time, same place next week. And remember, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Bye-bye.